We're going to go ahead and read the 64th Psalm for you before we get started. Psalm 64, to the chief musician, a Psalm of David. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide from me the secret plots of the wicked from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. We have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away, all men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. All right, our sermon today is the completion of the Song of Moses, and as I said last week, I want to say it again, is that there's just a ton of information in here, and there's no need to write it down, all the new words and things in here. It's just an evaluation of the most beautiful of songs that I have ever, ever known, and I didn't know it until I started evaluating it, and uh, if you want the information, it's all online. It's all published there, almost word for word what I say, except my, you know, my uh, ums and ers and ahs. I don't include them in the sermon, but... Uh, uh, just so you know, that, that you don't need to make a lot of notes unless you want to, but it, just enjoy the Song of Moses. What a, what a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's Exodus 15, 11 through 21. It's the Song of Moses, the Song at the Sea, and this is part two. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Adam will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone till you pass over, O Lord." till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with the timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he is thrown into the sea. <clears throat> There's some of the very worst artwork on the face of the planet on display in downtown Sarasota, isn't there? I don't think a person here would disagree with that. Abstract art, for the most part, is not art, and almost all of that stuff that is along the bayfront cannot be called art in any real sense. The metal sculptures would look a lot better as sports cars, those made of fiberglass would look much better as surfboards, and those made of resins of some sort would look better as children's Lego blocks. And if any of them are made of wood, well, even a shipping pallet is more pleasing to look at than the junk down there. But there is one exception, isn't there? Who here knows the name of the one piece of artwork that has true value downtown? The sailor. The sailor. It's called the kissing statue. Unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender. That's right. That's absolutely right. And people call it the kissing statue. It is one that every person who visits Sarasota loves to see. And, of course, it's the only one that stupid liberals, including the stupid Liberal Art Commission, want to see removed. And why is this? It's because it brings out the past that they don't want to consider. They hate the nation in which we live, and they hate what the kissing statue stands for. Victory over the enemies of World War II. It was a battle of good versus evil, and liberals always want evil to win. Today we will finish the Song of Moses, the Song at the Sea. The Lord won a great victory over Pharaoh and his army, but this victory only pictures a much greater victory in redemptive history. It is the victory over the devil 
and over sin. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. When we see the kissing statue downtown, we have a reminder of the once great thing that America accomplished in their triumph over the evil Axis powers which threatened the world. There was joy and there was jubilation in the land as we wildly celebrated what had been done. Miriam did some wild celebrating with the other women as they danced and played the timbrels and exalted the great victory that the Lord had accomplished for Israel. It's a great, it's a wonderful story. So let's look at this marvelous celebration together, enjoying its wonders as we look in God's superior word. It's all to be found there. And so let's look at that word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, who is like you, O Lord? It's verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Mikamoka ba'alim Yehovah. With these words, we now enter into the third stanza of the Song of Moses. It is shorter than the first two, but it's marvelous in its form and detail. Moses, as if completely overwhelmed by the thoughts which he has so far penned, turns from narration into question. It is as if he had to simply pause and contemplate the utter majesty of the Lord and his wonderful work. His first of two rhetorical questions is, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The question here is parallel to verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, where it said, The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In those verses, he described the Lord. Now in this question, he asks, Who is like him? The answer is implied in the question. No one. All of the gods of Egypt, the greatest nation on earth at the time, were rendered impotent against the hand of the Lord. None could compare to him, and all were shown to be false. Only the Lord was to be exalted because only the Lord is the true God. The words are as valid today as when Moses wrote them. Allah, Buddha, Krishna, and on and on and on. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? The answer stands, none are like the Lord. In this question is also, it's kind of an interesting little squiggle for your brain, the germ of the name of the archangel Michael, which means who is like God. If you say their names together, you, or the words here in the name of Michael, the archangel together, you can hear the similarity. Michael and Michamoka. Who can compare to the Lord? Verse 11 continues. Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Michamoka nadar ba kodesh. This portion of the verse is parallel to verse 15, 6, which said, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. He asks the question based on these words, and the reply is again implied in the question. Surely there is no one like the Lord who is glorious in holiness. In all ways, he is far above every being because he is the creator of them all. Therefore, he alone is holy. The word glorious, which in Hebrew is adar, is used for only the second time, both in this poem and in the Bible. In all, it's only going to be used three times in Scripture. Some translations use the word majestic, thus showing the superlative nature of the one who is glorious in holiness. This is the first time that the idea of holiness is actually ascribed directly to the Lord in the Bible. Three other times the word kodesh, or holy, has been used. The first was at the burning bush, where the Lord told Moses to take off his shoes because he was standing on holy ground. It implied that the Lord is the one who made the ground holy. The other two times, it was used in conjunction with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where the first and the last days of the feast were considered to be holy. Now, in this fourth use of the word, holiness is ascribed to the Lord, who is glorious in holiness, by asking this rhetorical question. Verse 11 going on, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Nora tehilot ose pele. This is the second half of the second question, and it is parallel to verses 6 through 8 of this chapter, which said, Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces, and in the greatness of your excellence you have overthrown those who arose against you. 
you sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Moses described the great works of the Lord. And now in question, he asks, who is like this? Again, the answer is implied in the question. There is none like the Lord who is fearful in praises, doing wonders. He uses three new words in this portion of this verse. The first is ema, and it's translated as fearful. It means terror. The second new word translated as praises is the word tehila. It means praise or a song of praise and thus a psalm. It comes from the word halal, which means to shine. And it's the word which describes the psalms in Hebrew. The book of songs are tehillim. And the, new, the third new word is translated as wonders. It is the word pele. It is used only 13 times in the Bible. It is a word found mostly in the Psalms to describe the Lord in a manner similar to this song of praise, but probably the most famous use of it is found in Isaiah 9, verse 6, when it describes the coming Messiah. Let me read this to you. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Pele, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Again and again, Moses draws out new and exceptional words from his Hebrew dictionary to describe the majesty of the Lord who has performed works never seen before. He is to be held in awe, but not just as an impressive mountain scene. Rather, we are to be in fearful awe of his glorious splendor. He is all-powerful, and therefore he alone is fearful in praises. The Lord's wonders in the creation itself, as well as how he works through the creation, are magnificent. And beyond this, he has proven that he can work beyond the natural order. The final plague, that of the firstborn, transcended the natural. And the parting and the closing of the Red Sea did as well. The Lord is able to suspend nature in order to accomplish his great wonders. It is he who is wonderful in all ways. Moses first recognizes this in written form for the people of the world to reflect on ever since. The author of the 86th Psalm appears to have used his words here as a pattern for his own reflections about the Lord. Here's what it says. Among the gods there is none like you, O Lord, nor are there any works like your works. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things, you alone are God. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Yatita yaminicha tiblai mo aretz. These words are parallel to verse 10, which said, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. But though parallel, there is an addition to what we have seen so far. It is that the earth swallowed them. It could be as many scholars believe that this is speaking of the sea as a part of the earth and that Moses is using poetic license in this description. However, it could be that this implies more than just the waters covering them, but that the earth was rent asunder as well. The 77th Psalm, which details this event, seems to confirm that along with the closing of the sea, there was also an earthquake. It says, the voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way, was in, your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. The earth and all of its elements are under the complete control of the Lord. The Egyptians failed to see this, and they perished. Israel failed to heed Moses. Twice they were exiled. And the world has forgotten that the Lord is in control, and they too will suffer the judgments because of this. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods of the world? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? You are fearful in praises, your wonders unfurled. Only to you shall my soul bless. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed the peoples. You and your mercy have led forth your redeemed as planned, so that they can gather together and praise you under the church steeples. The people whom you have redeemed and brought out, you have guided them in your might to your holy habitation, and with a resounding shout, they have been brought into your glorious light. Our second thought today is the Lord shall reign forever and ever, verses 13 through 18. Verse 13, you and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. 
Nahita Bahash Deha Amzu Gaaleta. This is the concluding verse of the third stanza, but it is also the first verse of the second major section of the song. The first 12 verses, as I said last week, were retrospective. They looked back on the deliverance of the Israelites by the Lord. Now from verses 13 through 18, they are prospective. They look forward to future results of that deliverance. And yet, even though they're future, they are written in a past tense, mission accomplished style. Moses acknowledges that it is the Lord's chesed, or divine favor, which made him select and covenant with Israel. In other words, it was a merciful act and not because they had merited his loving kindness. It's an important point which Moses has incorporated into this song. The Lord covenanted with Abraham and made a promise to his seed. Even in their unfaithfulness, he has remained faithful to the people he redeemed. And the words of this verse are exactly what the Lord promised all the way back in chapter 6 with these words. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Just as the Lord promised, so he also fulfilled. Verse 13 continues. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Nahalta the form of the Hebrew indicates that the guiding of which Moses speaks is ongoing. In other words, Moses is looking forward to where they are being led, even though it is written as if they are already there. The Lord had guided them, he was guiding them, and he would continue to guide them by the power of his strength to his holy habitation. It could be, and it probably is, that this is speaking of the land of Canaan, the land of promise. But verse 17 is much more specific than that. Not only would the people be brought into the land of promise, but there would be a place in that land where the Lord would dwell. In the end, this is not only a historical account, but also a picture of those redeemed through the tribulation period of the future and who will also partake in the millennial reign of Christ as spoken by the prophets many times. It is also a picture of the redeemed of the Lord who will eventually be guided even to his heavenly habitation. This is described in Hebrews chapter 12 with these words. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. In both the temporal and in the spiritual, it is the Lord who guides his redeemed until they arrive at the destination which he has prepared for them. It is marvelous to see how history continues to repeat itself so we can know that the Lord's hand is involved in what occurs. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Shameu amim yirgazun. The word people in the Hebrew is plural. It is speaking of the various people groups in the land of Canaan, many of whom have already been named in the Bible. They are groups such as those that were mentioned in Exodus chapter 3 when the Lord spoke to Moses at the burning bush. These included the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. These and many other groups as well would hear and they would fear. This became a reality when Israel finally entered Canaan, when the spies first entered the land, they came to the house of Rahab the harlot, and she said this to them, thus confirming Moses' words in this verse right here. She said, I know that the Lord has given you the land. The terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any courage in anyone because of you. For the fear of the Lord, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. Verse 14 continues. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. In Moses' words now, though, he specifically singles out the inhabitants of Philistia. He says that sorrow would take hold of them. The word sorrow in Hebrew is chil. It is the first of seven times that it's going to be used, and it specifically means agony or anguish. The Philistines have been mentioned several times in the Bible already, but the territory known as Philistia is now mentioned for the first time. 
They are thus not just a group of people, but they are a people who have a portion of land identified with them. It's the coastal area, which is still occupied today by a rebellious group of people known as the Palestinians, a term which comes from the Hebrew word used to describe this ancient people. However, the modern Palestinians are actually Arabs with no connection to this original group. Thus, they could more rightly be called Fakistinians. Just, <laughs> just as the Philistines trembled at Israel in the past, the modern Fakistinians do so once again in the present. History continues to repeat itself, and the enemies of God and of his people follow the same pattern time and time again. Verse 15, then the chiefs of Adam will be dismayed. The Alufe, or the chiefs of Edom, are mentioned dozens of times in chapter 36 of the Bible, Genesis chapter 36, and then again in the genealogies of 1 Chronicles chapter 1. However, by the time Israel finishes its wilderness wanderings, these chiefs are going to be replaced with a king. Despite being under a kingdom and having become belligerent towards Israel, Moses still warned the people just prior to their movement into the land of Canaan that despite their fear of Israel, they were to be left alone. Here are his words to them. You are about to pass through the territory of your brethren, the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully. Do not meddle with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as one footstep, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. Verse 15 continues, The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. Ele Moab, Yochazemo Ra'ad. These words are perfectly described as being fulfilled just as Moses wrote them. In Numbers 22, we read this. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. The story which follows goes from Numbers 22 to Numbers 24, and it concerns the story of Moab and Balaam the prophet. It has become a favorite of God's people ever since. Verse 15 continues, All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. No Namogu ho yesheve kanan. Along with the words of Rahab that I read just a couple minutes ago, this prophecy of Moses is exactingly fulfilled in the words of Joshua chapter 5. It says there, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted. And there was no spirit in any of them any longer because of the children of Israel. Verse 16, fear and dread will fall on them. For the second time, both in the song and in the Bible, Moses uses the word emah. The first time was in verse 11 to describe the Lord who is fearful in praises. Now he says that emah, or dread, along with fear, will fall on the inhabitants of Canaan. Though they were more numerous than the people of Israel, they would be no match for them because they knew of his mighty arm, which was set on destroying her enemies. And because of this, they would be both in fear and dread of the crushing flood, which would come upon them. Verse 16 continues, by the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. In Exodus 6, verse 6, the Lord had promised to bring Israel out with an outstretched arm. That same symbolism is now used again to show that the arm of the Lord is not shortened. He would go on wielding it for his redeemed against the people they would continue to encounter. And because of the display of strength with his arm, and which it would show, Moses says that their enemies would be as still as a stone. Again, he brings a new word into the Bible's pages, translated as still. It is the word damam, which means to cease. The idea is that because of astonishment, they would be at once motionless and hushed, just like a stone. It's a beautiful metaphor to consider. Verse 16 continues, Till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. Ad ya'abor amecha Yehovah, ad ya'abor amzukhanita. This section of the verse isn't speaking of either the trip out of Egypt nor the passing through of the Red Sea. It continues to be prospective, looking forward to the journey into Canaan. 
In Deuteronomy 29, verse 16, Moses speaks of the nations they passed by during the wilderness wanderings. They encountered many peoples passing them by on the way to a better place, a place which had been promised to them over 400 years earlier. The repetitions of the word in this verse are used to highlight and magnify the fact that all of those nations remained as still as a stone while Israel passed through them. It is true that some of them came against them in battle, but those who did were crushed by Israel, becoming as still as a stone in death. The Lord allowed nothing to impede their march forward except the stubbornness of their own hearts as they rebelled against him. But even that didn't cause his forward motion to cease entirely. And the reason is in the word purchased. Israel was purchased through the destruction of Egypt and the slaying of the Passover. Because they were bought back, he would continue to lead them and fight for them. They had become his possession and therefore the only one who had a right to discipline them was him. Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. A little tongue twisting on that one. <laughs> Moses taking the rest of the journey toward and into Canaan as an accomplished fact says that the Lord will not only bring them in, but that he would plant them. And the word he uses means exactly that, as if to plant a tree. It conveys the idea that they will be firmly fixed in the land. However, even before they arrive, they will be given advanced notice and warning that just as a tree can be planted, it can also be uprooted. In his warnings to the people, he again spoke to them in a prospective manner, telling them that as certainly as they were to be planted, they would likewise be uprooted when they failed to live up to the standards which he had set for them. It's recorded in Deuteronomy 29. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against this land to bring on it every curse that is written in this book. And the Lord uprooted them from their land in anger, in wrath, and in great indignation and cast them into another land as it is this day. And the reason for both the planting of them and the uprooting of them is found in the words, the mountain of your inheritance. The land of Israel is equated to a mountain as it is several times in the Bible. Because it is the Lord's inheritance, meaning the Lord's land, it is up to him who may live there. The Lord gave the land to Israel as their inheritance as well. And so when they remain obedient to the Lord, it is their land and they may use it. When they are under the punishment of the Lord, it is their land and they may not use it. Either way, it is the Lord's land. He has given it to Israel and he decides when they may dwell in it. This is no different than a father giving to a son a bicycle or a car. Just because it belongs to the son, it does not mean that he can always use it. Israel is the Lord's child, and so he governs the rights of the child. Verse 17 continues, In the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling. Again, for the umpteenth time in this marvelous song, Moses introduces a new word to us, makon. It is a fixed or established place, a foundation. The idea is permanence. And this word, which is used 17 times in the Bible, almost always refers to some aspect of the Lord's earthly temple or his heavenly throne. Moses' words here put that idea into motion, and it will be repeated many times as the idea of permanence is affixed to the Lord's dwelling place. Verse 17 continues, The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Mikadesh Adonai Konu Yadecha. Interestingly, the name Yehovah, or Lord, all capitals, is used ten times in this song of Moses. But in this one verse, the title, Lord, or capital L, small O-R-D, meaning Adonai, is used instead. Why Moses deferred to the title rather than the name is a puzzle. But having done it this one time, it makes the song all that much more exceptional. The only commentator that I read who even mentioned this change was a guy named John Lang. And he said, the center of this mountain is, on the one hand, the dwelling place of Jehovah. On the other hand, the sanctuary of the Lord, Adonai, for his people. In other words, he's trying to make a contrast between the Lord's dwelling place, Jehovah, and where the people meet Jehovah in his dwelling place. But this is not correct. The lines of the verse are formed in parallel, and they simply convey the same idea with different words. To me, 
it is probably because of the meaning of the number 10 in scripture, which is that of the perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, and that the whole cycle is complete. As 10 signifies completion and the perfection of divine order, Moses chose to include this address to the Lord with a title rather than as the Lord with a name. Again, in this verse, we are introduced with a new word into the particular verse, mikadash or sanctuary. It carries the same meaning as the word kodesh or holy, which we saw a few moments ago, but it is applied to the dwelling of the Lord. However, it is the Lord who makes the sanctuary holy. Therefore, Moses notes that it is the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The words of Moses, if understood and heeded by Israel, would have saved them from an immense amount of grief throughout their generations. If the Lord is the one who sanctifies the sanctuary, then those who are disobedient to the Lord will defile it. This occurred throughout their history, and twice he saw fit to destroy the very place where he dwelt among them. Ezekiel 5 gives the charges to the people before its first destruction with these words. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will also diminish you. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One-third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one-third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. All of this could have been avoided if the people just kept their hearts and their minds directed towards the Lord. But Israel is just a microcosm of the greater world. Like them, the world has failed to pay heed. Even our nation, America, has failed to pay heed. What came upon Egypt and what came upon Israel will also come on a global scale, all because we fail to pay heed to the word of the Lord. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Yehovah yemlak le'olam ve'ed. The song of Moses ends with these words of glorious affirmation. They are amazingly simple and the substance of them will be repeated and built upon many, many times in scripture, even into the New Testament where we read these words from Revelation chapter 11. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Thus Moses' words here are to be taken as a statement concerning the redeemed throughout all dispensations and even throughout eternity itself. To show that this is a thought which is actually beyond comprehension, he introduces one last new word into the Bible, and it is the very last word of the song. It is the word ad, or forever. By adding it to the word olam, which also means forever, it adds a superlative sense to its meaning. This dynasty of Pharaoh that we saw perish had come while Israel was in Egypt and it had ended before their very eyes. The waters of the ocean which consumed him dated back to the very moment when the Lord created them and those same waters saw his final end. Other kingdoms would arise and they too would fall. History would continue on year after year, century after century and millennium after millennium. But the Lord who was there at the very beginning will still be there when all of the earthly kingdoms have passed into oblivion. Only he will reign forever because only he is the Lord. How great are your deeds, O Lord our God. Wonderful, splendid, majestic, we cry to you. Our eyes have seen glory as our feet have trod and you have brought us out to a life brand new. And you will bring your people in and you, them you will plant in the mountain of your inheritance. There the people will dance and to you they will chant of your great deeds for their deliverance. In the place, O Lord, which you have furnished for your own dwelling, we too shall dwell, leaving never. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Our third thought is, he has triumphed gloriously. It's verses 19 through 21. Verse 19, for the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. This verse is given as a summary of what was said in chapter 14. With more details there, it said these words. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh. 
that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained. But the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. This is not then a later insert. Many scholars try to say that the words we just read in verse 19 were inserted later by somebody. That's not it at all. Rather, it is a recounting of why this song was written. The words begin with a conjunction, key, which means for or because. The last words of the song that we read said, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. The for or because is explaining that thought. Pharaoh is no longer a threat to the people of God because the Lord has proven himself above all gods. This then is a prophetic picture of the comparable redemptive battles to come. From Christ defeating the world of sin and the power of the devil at the cross to his final defeat of the devil and his demons when they are cast into the lake of fire, it is all pictured right here in these words. Because of this marvelous work of the Lord, a spontaneous act came about by Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out with her with timbrels and with dances. Miriam is formally introduced into the Bible at this time. Even though she was seen on the banks of the river when her younger brother Moses was placed in the ark made by his mother but she wasn't named at that time. Now, some 80 years after that, she has witnessed another miracle of the Lord as that same brother raised his staff to first open the waters of the Red Sea and then to close them over the enemies of Israel. She is called the sister of Aaron rather than Moses, possibly because Aaron is the elder of the two, but more probably because both she and Aaron are considered subordinate to Moses in the narrative before us. In this verse, she is called a prophetess. She is the first of five women who are given this designation in the Old Testament. There is also one in Luke 2. If you remember, her name is Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who was there when Jesus was brought into the temple. And other women are noted as prophesying in the book of Acts as well. Here she sets a precedent in the Bible, which will be followed by other women. She takes a timbrel, meaning a tambourine, and she goes out and dance before the Lord in victory. Other women will follow in this same manner when kings or others come home from victory in battle. They will dance and play the timbrel for the victor. One of the most noted instances is found in Judges chapter 11, where the daughter of Jephthah came out with timbrels and dancing to welcome home her father who had won the victory. Unfortunately, things didn't go so well for her after that. It's a very sad story despite the victory of Jephthah. Unfortunately, the meaning of Miriam is not well agreed upon. However, one possibility for introducing her name here comes from two separate words. Man, I studied for probably 30 minutes on just the name Miriam to try to figure out what her name means. Two separate Hebrew words may form her name. One is Merar, which means either bitter or strong, and the other one is Yam, which means sea. So you can hear it, Merar Yam, Miriam. And so her name may mean waters of strength. That would certainly explain why the name is given at this time. The Red Sea crushed the enemies of the Lord as he directed them back to their natural state. This can only be speculation, so if any of you go and make a brain squiggle on that, please include that it is only one possible meaning to her name, which happens to correspond with the introduction of her name at this time. And the meaning does fit well with our final verse of the day, verse 21. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider, he is thrown into the sea. The word for them in this verse is masculine. And because of this, it is believed that after hearing the first words of the Song of Moses, she picked up that refrain and answered them after each stanza as they went through the song. As she and the other women sang, they played the timbrel and they danced. This is the first time that dancing is mentioned in the Bible. And it is almost sad, and I mean this sincerely, it's almost sad to read the Elizabethan era commentaries on this verse. They say that it was either only appropriate in the past, as if somehow dancing should never be allowed among Christians, or they might say something like, she and the other women moved gracefully through a stately and solemn dance. Personally, I would imagine that the very last thing that they would be doing is having a slow, solemn dance. Instead, they would be leaping for joy at the work of the Lord. 
I can't think of anything duller and more boring than a congregation of people who would sit still on the shore of the Red Sea in an almost catatonic state, quietly playing their harps after seeing what they had seen. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, it says that David danced before the Lord with all of his might as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. He did this because he understood the greatness of the Lord who had delivered him from all his foes. And certainly Miriam and the entire congregation of Israel danced their hearts out before the Lord as well. So if you're not too old to break something, I don't think the Lord would fault you one little bit for doing the same. And considering, please consider that Miriam is somewhere around 90 years of age, Pat, right? You're probably not too old to dance before the Lord. Rejoice before the Lord because he has done great things for us. He has done far more for us than merely bringing us through a deep body of water and crushing an army who was set and determined to destroy us. More than that, he has brought us beyond an eternal chasm, an infinite divide between us and our God. In the process, he destroyed the power of the devil over us, and he has brought us to the safe shores of a heavenly inheritance. That is assuming that you are one of his redeemed. And how did he accomplish this? Let me tell you, just in case you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we all have a problem in us, and that problem is sin. And that problem infinitely separates us from an infinitely holy God. He's outside of time where he fashioned the universe, which is a bubble. And we are inside of that bubble. And we are moving through time in this direction. And we have sin in our lives. And it's not just sin that we've committed. It's sin that was inherited from our first father, Adam. And we can't go back and undo what he did because our time is going in this direction. And therefore, there is an infinite chasm between us and that God who is outside of the time that he created. But he did something so marvelous, so absolutely wonderful. He stepped out of that eternal realm and he united with human flesh in a woman. And because of that, because sin travels through the father and he had no earthly father, he inherited no sin. So now he's qualified to take the place of Adam. All he has to do is actually live the law under which he was born, which is God's perfect standard. And if he can do that thing, then he will be qualified to take away our sins. And so he was qualified without sin. He lived the perfect life as the gospels clearly tell us. And then he gave that perfect life up in exchange for the sins that you and I have committed. And all we have to do, all we have to do is simply ask by faith, Jesus Christ, I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to be redeemed from the sin which is in my life. And I want to be bought back from the power of the devil. All pictured by what Moses wrote about in this glorious psalm, this glorious, beautiful song of the works of the Lord. Jesus fulfilled those pictures for us. Call out to Jesus Christ today. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and to lead you to that wondrous place where we will be in the Lord's holy heavenly habitation for all of eternity, forever and ever. Le olam ve'ad. Okay? Our uh, closing verse today is from Luke chapter 1. It's verses 51 and 52. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts he has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. What a great God. I mean, the lowest of all is sitting before you today. And he exalted me to sit on his throne with him someday because of the blood of Jesus Christ. How wonderful. Next week is Exodus 15, 22 through 27. Something enjoyable for you, my sons and daughters. It's the sweetened waters. It's our 44th Exodus sermon. And I will tell you that this will be something that Jim and Linda will especially take pleasure in by the time we get to the end of the sermon. That's all I'm going to say. So unless the, the rapture happens or unless you guys can't make it next Sunday, you will, you will enjoy the end of this sermon, I promise you. And now I'll tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground and so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Don't forget that second part. He'll do something great for you and that's what everybody in Joel Osteen's church wants. But he wants to do something marvelous through you as well, okay? It's not all about me, it's about him. So go out and do something marvelous for him. I have a poem to you today called The Lord Shall Reign Forever and Ever. And as last week, I'm not changing any of the song itself because it's a song, and so you're not going to get any poem form on it. 
but the rest of it will be. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them. By the greatness of your arm, they will be as still as a stone. Till you pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went into the sea with his chariots and his horsemen, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on the dry land in the midst of the sea. Surely it was a marvelous event. Then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. The celebration was grand. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord won the victory over the armies of Pharaoh, casting them into deep waters of the Red Sea. But he delivered Israel. His greatness he did show. And so the Israelites shouted out in victory. The people danced and sang to the Lord because of the marvelous display they did see. And we too should feel free to act the same toward our great Savior Jesus, who from sin and death has set us free. Don't just sit there like you're dead in your seat. Instead, raise your hands and move those feet. Shout out to Jesus with voices that have truly been set free. Shout out about the wonderful things that he has done for you and me. Shout out, people. The Lord has won the victory. Hallelujah and amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, how good it is to know that we are already destined for your holy habitation. And we don't have to do anything except receive the work of Jesus. We don't have to add any works into it. All we have to do is just simply trust. Just have faith that Jesus can deliver, to, deliver us to your holy habitation. I am so thankful for that because there is not a moment of this life that I don't just completely screw up in one way or another with my thoughts or with my deeds or with the things I should have done that I didn't do. And I'm sure most people here would feel the same. But how great you are to save us despite ourselves and to continue to save us despite ourselves. You are marvelous, you are great, and you are glorious. Lord, we thank you for the long vacation that Paul and Elaine have had. We pray that uh, they'll be back here safely next week, and uh, unless you should come first. And uh, we pray for those that are in stress and distress this week and uh, say a prayer for the family of um, Tom Pinson, who uh, died and uh, who's uh, mourning him right now. And also for the uh, family of Lynn, who uh, we have a funeral service for her next week. And uh, we would pray for that family who just received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior about a week before she died. And there she is in your presence right now, knowing that she made the right decision. What a great God you are. Thank you for these things. Look into our hearts and uh, take away the things that are wicked. Put in there things that are pure and holy and help us to just focus our eyes on you all the days of our life. And we'll be sure to praise you throughout all of those days. And we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen. So the people that have never been here before, uh, the instruction for the Lord's Supper are written by Paul and they come directly out of the Bible. And uh, the only thing that we add into them is the blessing that Jesus would have said over the elements. But other than that, it is directly out of the Bible. And he writes there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he gave thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atha Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. And he broke it. And he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Peri HaGafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we have the Feast of Trumpets coming up this Wednesday, and I don't think a person here would mind if you, uh, not the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, and I don't think a person here would mind if you would take us home on that day, or any other day. We so long to see you, but until then, we have the bread and the wine remembering the death of Christ until he comes again. And may that day be soon. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.